Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, Weirdos! I'm Darren Marlar, and this is a Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, the strange and bizarre, crime, conspiracy, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you're new here, welcome to the show, and if you're already a member of this weirdo family, please take a moment and invite someone else to listen. Recommending Weird Darkness to others helps make it possible for me to keep doing the show. And while you're listening, be sure to check out WeirdDarkness.com, where you can find the daily podcast and all social media that I'm on, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, MeWe, and others, along with the Weird Darkness Weirdos Facebook group. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. When I was in my 20s, I lived with my mom and her new husband in Wanette, Oklahoma, a little sleepy town with nothing but a convenience store 10 miles from the town. I lived with them because I had a hard pregnancy, so I couldn't take care of my son alone. One night, my mom and her husband Charles were making dinner, getting ready for the next day's venture to the cemetery to visit family buried there they told me a story I would never forget. They told me of Box Road. As it goes, a man shot his wife and son in the face with a double-barrel shotgun, then ran to a tree overlooking the road and hung himself. It took getting a cherry picker to cut him down. The location has been haunted ever since, and there are other stories of white dogs and black dogs that roam that stretch of road. This is where my story comes in. When I was about eight months pregnant, I was driving down that road at night, and I needed air, so I had the windows rolled down. I don't know what time it was, but it was pitch black. I was driving when something black caught my eye, so I looked and I saw a man standing just outside my window, not moving, just standing there. Mind you, I was going about 40 miles per hour down this little one-lane road, but he kept up, not moving, just watching me. So I sped up, hoping to wish it away. As I turned my eyes from him, I saw a big black dog running toward the car at full speed. As it got closer, I could make out red eyes and that it was just as big as a Buick. I slammed on the brakes just in time for it to vanish in a puff of smoke. I sat there, crying, wishing I had a phone to call my mom when something told me to look up. I looked at the old willow covering the road and I saw the same man that was at my window, now hanging, staring at me with cold eyes. It took only a second for me to comprehend, flight or die. I mean, I didn't need to go into labor out in the middle of nowhere, 
so I stomped on the gas and flew all the way back to my mother's where I told her everything. She told me it was a bad omen, so for the rest of my pregnancy I was not to leave that house. After my baby girl was born, healthy and happy, I never saw that dog or that man again. Everyone has moments when they feel as though they recognize a place they've never been before and they don't think much of it, but sometimes it can be downright spooky. I worked for several years as a real estate agent in West Virginia before throwing in the towel to enter phases two and three of my life, professional organizer and writer. At any rate, while working as a realtor, I had the opportunity to tour many homes of all shapes and sizes. From the most expensive to the modest, I thought I'd seen it all. I had no idea how true that would turn out to be. One day I received the call all realtors covet. A couple were looking for a home to buy and they needed to enlist the help of an agent. Look no further, I told them, I'm your girl. With that, I took down all of their information and made arrangements to meet with them in person and get the specifics of exactly what type of home they were interested in. Once I had found several homes that I felt would suit their needs, I contacted my clients and set up appointments for them to tour the homes. The first couple of showings were uneventful. We walked through the houses and everything was by the book. It was at the third house that things started to take a turn for the bizarre. My clients and I traveled in separate vehicles so that I could arrive a little ahead of them. I would enter the house and turn on the lights and do a quick walkthrough before they showed up. I had never seen this house before, never been inside of it until that day, didn't really even have any recollections of having driven past it. As soon as I opened the front door with the pass key, I knew that house like the back of my hand. The strangest feeling sank into the pit of my stomach as I started flipping on the light switches and walking through the rooms. I knew exactly where everything was. As I continued through the house, I knew where every door led. I knew what the layouts of the rooms would be before I entered them. I could have walked through it blindfolded. It was as though I had lived in that house for years. I knew what would be around every corner. I even knew what kind of light fixtures and windows the place had. My head was spinning by the time my clients showed up to see the house. I probably looked like I had seen a ghost because they asked me if I felt alright. I just nodded and went about the routine of showing them the layout and going over the detail sheet with them. My mind was in such a haze that I don't really recall everything that went on that day. I do know that they didn't buy the house. I have experienced deja vu before, usually just a passing sense that I am reliving an event exactly the way it happened in the past, even though it had never really happened to me before. This, however, was a whole different ball of wax. I don't know how, but I knew 
that house even though I had never in my life been inside of it before that day. One thing was for sure, I never felt the need to enter it ever again and I removed it from my database of houses I would show my clients. In the middle 1990s, when I began writing about ghosts and hauntings across the Midwest, there was one house that I was frequently referred to by people in Ohio – Franklin Castle. Officially known as the Tiedemann Mansion, the unusual structure had long been called the most haunted house in the state. During its long and rather odd history, the ghosts became an integral part of its lore. For years, tales would be told of doors that exploded off their hinges, lights that spun around on their own, electrical circuits that behaved erratically, the inexplicable sounds of a baby crying, and even a woman in black who had been spotted staring forlornly from a small window in the front tower room. According to local tales, there have always been ghosts in the house, and this should come as no surprise considering the dark deeds, murders, and diabolical events that have been linked to this place. But how many of those stories are true, and how many are merely the stuff of legend? At the edge of Franklin Boulevard in Cleveland, you'll find the castle, a place where it is hard to separate fact from fiction. It's an eerie and forbidding stone structure that has long been considered a spooky place by history buffs, architects, and the general public alike. Rising high above the street, its stone tower looms over the property. The exterior is adorned with menacing gargoyles and for decades its windows were dark and filled with shadows. There were originally over 30 rooms in the house and intricate carvings filled the interior. The entire third floor was a grand ballroom and the top floor offered sweeping views of the city and Lake Erie. And of course, there were the rumors. Secret passageways, it was said, honeycombed the house and sliding panels were used to hide the entrances to these hidden corridors. It was claimed that a young girl was once murdered in one of these hallways by her uncle because he believed her to be insane. In the front tower, a gruesome axe murder had once taken place, and it was in that tower that one of the former owners found a secret cabinet that contained human bones. Cleveland's deputy coroner, Dr. Lester Adelson, examined the bones in January 1975 and stated that they were very old and definitely human. Many believed that the forgotten bones had been left there by the house's original owner, a successful banker with a penchant for evil. Hans Tiedemann was a German immigrant to Cleveland who started out as a barrel maker and a wholesale grocer. He later turned to banking and founded the Euclid Avenue Savings and Trust, which made him very successful and very wealthy. He decided that he wanted a grand home that befit his newly acquired social status and hired the famed Cleveland architectural firm of Cuddle & Richardson to build it for him. When the house was designed in the late 19th century, Franklin Boulevard was one of the most upscale residential areas in Cleveland, 
perhaps second only to Euclid Avenue's so-called Millionaire's Row. The house was built over the period of 1881 to 1883, and it was meant to not only provide an upscale residence for his family, but also to provide a temporary place for friends, family, and others emigrating from Germany to stay when they first arrived in Cleveland. The house replaced an earlier house on the property, which was torn down during the construction of the castle. Hans moved into the house with his wife Louise, his mother, Wybecca, their children, August, Emma, and Dora, and several servants. More children were born, but the stories say that life in the castle was never happy. By 1891, it had turned tragic. In January 1891, Tiedemann's mother and his daughter Emma died within weeks of one another. Although Wybecca's death was from natural causes, Emma died from diabetes. In those days, death from the disease came as a horrible, lingering starvation for which there was no cure. Over the next three years, the Tiedemann family would bury three more children, one of them just 11 days old. It truly seemed as though the family was cursed. To take his wife's mind off the tragedies, Tiedemann began extensive renovations on the house. It was during this expansion that the ballroom was added to the third floor, as well as the turrets and gargoyles on the exterior, giving the house a more castle-like appearance. Gas lighting was also installed throughout the house, and the legends say so were the secret passages, concealed rooms, and hidden doors. Unfortunately, though, the hidden passageways and secret chambers in the house have vanished with time, if they existed at all. No trace of them can be found today, other than a small stairway that was used by the servants to get from the kitchen to the front door, which were commonly found in large homes of the era. Of course, the absence of such mysterious passages tends to cast doubt on some of the more heinous stories of the house. That Hans Tiedemann used the tunnels for his sexual indiscretions and even to commit murder. In one tunnel leading away from the ballroom, Tiedemann was supposed to have murdered his niece by hanging her from a rafter. She was insane, it has been said, and he did it to put her out of her misery. He's also supposed to have murdered a young servant girl on her wedding day because she spurned his advances. Another version of this story claims the murdered woman was actually Tiedemann's mistress, killed because she wanted to marry another man. Some say she is the woman in black who haunts the tower room. But if there are no secret passages in the house, do the stories of the murders committed in them, stories that seem to form the foundation for the ghost stories in the house, have any truth to them at all? Even without them, however, there was still plenty of death and tragedy linked to the house. On March 24, 1895, Louise Tiedemann died at the age of 57 from liver failure. Hans remarried a short time later, leading many to speculate about the circumstances of Louise's death. Soon after, Tiedemann sold the castle to a local brewing family named Mulhauser and moved to a grander home on Lake Road. His second marriage did not last long. He divorced her after only a year, leaving her with nothing. 
By 1908, Tiedemann's entire family, including his son August and his grandsons, had passed away. There was no one left to inherit his fortune or to comfort him in his old age. Tiedemann died later that same year, suffering a massive stroke while walking in the park one day. Had the curse been lifted from the house? Or was more tragedy coming? In 1913, the Mulhauser family sold the castle to the local German Socialist Party, who officially used the house for meetings and parties. Rumors quickly spread, though, that the Socialists were actually using the place as a headquarters for spy efforts during World War I. Years later, a German shortwave radio was allegedly found hidden in the rafters. The infamous secret passages were claimed to be the scene of a brutal murder during the Germans' social occupation of the house. The house was mainly unoccupied during this time, but it's possible that they may have rented out at least portions of it. During an interview in the 1970s, a Cleveland nurse recalled that she had cared for an ailing attorney in the castle in the 1930s. She remembered being often terrified at night by the sound of a small child crying. More than 40 years later, she told a reporter that she would never set foot in that house again. In January 1968, the German socialist group sold the house to James Romano. Romano, his wife, and their six children soon moved into the mansion, a place that Mrs. Romano had always been fascinated with. They planned to open a restaurant in the house, but soon changed their minds. On the very day that the family moved in, she sent her children upstairs to play. A little while later, they came back downstairs and asked if they could have a cookie for their new friend, a little girl who was upstairs crying. Mrs. Romano followed the children back upstairs but found no little girl. Mrs. Romano also reported hearing organ music coming from different parts of the house. Footsteps in the hallways and on the stairs, disembodied voices and the sounds of people coming from the former ballroom. The Romanos consulted a Catholic priest who declined to do an exorcism but told them that he sensed a bad presence in the house. He advised them to leave. Instead, they turned to the now-defunct Northeast Ohio Physical Research Group who decided to investigate the castle. If the stories are to be believed, one of the ghost hunters actually ran screaming from the house in the middle of the investigation. After enduring years of ghostly activity, the Romanos had reached their limit by 1974 and sold the house to Sam Muscatello, who was eager to cash in on the castle's eerie reputation. He began offering guided tours of the house and making notes about alleged encounters by visitors with the woman in black, strange sounds, vanishing objects, and cold spots in the castle. He also used the media to generate publicity and once, during a live segment on Cleveland radio, host John Webster had a tape recorder pulled off his shoulder and thrown down a staircase. Webster later recalled, I just stood there, holding the microphone as I watched the tape recorder go flying down to the bottom of the stairs where it broke into pieces. Another time, during a television piece, crew member Ted Osipek witnessed a hanging ceiling light that suddenly began turning in circular motions. 
Someone suggested that perhaps traffic vibrations on the street outside had caused the movement of the light. Osipek didn't think so. I just don't know, he said, but there's something in that house. Muscatello began searching for the alleged secret passages in the house, and that was when he found a pile of human bones behind a panel in the tower. Although few deny that real human bones were removed from the castle whom they belonged to and how they ended up there has been debated. Some took the bones as proof that Hans Tiedemann was the murderer that legend claimed him to be, but others, however, believe that Muscatello stashed the bones there as quote-unquote evidence behind the haunting at Franklin Castle. Unable to make the castle into the tourist attraction that he hoped it would be, Muscatello eventually decided to sell the place. It was purchased by a doctor who later sold the house for the same price he paid for it to Cleveland's police chief, Richard Hongisto. The chief and his wife declared that the mansion would be the perfect place to live, but then, less than a year later, they abruptly sold the house to George Merceda, who knew nothing of the mansion's reputation at the time. He bought the castle because of its Gothic architecture, but soon learned that it was alleged to be haunted. Following in the footsteps of Sam Mustatello, he started offering tours of the place. Merceda lived alone in the house but had many visitors. During his tours, he asked his visitors to record any of their strange experiences in a guest book before they left. Some claimed to see a woman in white, others a woman in black. Some told of hearing babies crying or seeing things move about. One woman even claimed that she felt like she was being choked in the tower room. Merceda admitted that he couldn't explain all of his experiences in the house, but he maintained that it was not haunted. If it was, he told a reporter, he would be too scared to live there. There has to be a logical explanation for everything, he told an interviewer. In 1984, the house was sold again. It was purchased by Michael Davinko, who almost immediately began making major renovations to the house. Davinko, whose stage name was Mickey Dean and who was the last husband of singer and actress Judy Garland, spent close to $1 million restoring the house over the next decade. He claimed to have no problems with the resident ghosts, but surmised that it may have been because he was taking care of the old place again. He successfully tracked down the original blueprints to the house, some of the Tiedemann furniture, and even the original key to the front door, which still worked. Despite all this, Davinko still decided to move out and put the house up for sale in 1994. The castle was again sold in 1999, but was torched by an arsonist soon after, causing substantial damage to the place. The new owner spent a large sum of money in repairs but was never able to complete the restoration of the house. During the time that he worked on the house, the owner stated that he was unsure if it was haunted or whether he believed in ghosts at all. However, he did say that many of his friends and family had odd experiences in the castle. He added that it was not a scary place, but it was a little creepy, especially in the middle of the night. He said, I've heard strange sounds and hoped to see something or hear something that would prove to me that ghosts exist but so far it hasn't happened. 
So far, it's been no spookier than sleeping alone in any old house that creaks in the wind or has rattling pipes. In 2003, the house was sold once more, and the new owner, a local land developer, announced hopes of renovating the mansion and turning it into the Franklin Castle Club with a restricted membership. But three years later, it was discovered that there was no truth to the plan. No repairs had been made, and photographs that had been publicized were either close-ups of individual pieces of architecture or were older pictures from other sources. No work had been done, no memberships sold, and there were even claims that the house had been used as a location for filming pornography. The owners were no longer permitted to allow anyone on the property. Five more years passed, and in July 2011, it was announced that the castle had been rezoned to allow it to become a three-family dwelling, and a sale was pending. It was purchased later that year by a European tapestry artist named Chiaradonna del Rose. A permit was granted for residential exterior alterations in 2012, and local news sources reported that it was to be converted into a multiple-unit property. Renovations have been made, but it remains a work in progress and closed to the public. Is Franklin Castle truly as haunted as the stories say? Or are the legends of the house simply tall tales that were overblown by previous owners to get paying tourists in the door? At this point, no one can say for sure. As more of the incorrect history of the house has been debunked, the source of the ghost stories becomes harder to find. But if we dismiss the stories of Hans Tiedemann as a brutal killer and the tales of secret passages and mysterious murders, does that mean the castle is not haunted at all? No, I don't believe that it does. No matter what, the castle is a place that is marked by both tragedy and death, and the events of the past may have certainly left an impression behind. As with other legendary spots, it may turn out that Franklin Castle is just as haunted as we have already heard that it is just not for the reasons that myth and legends about the place like to claim. If you like what you're hearing in Weird Darkness, please tell somebody about the podcast, someone you know who loves creepy, strange stuff like you do. Also, please leave a rating and review of the podcast in the podcast app you listen from. Doing so helps the show to get noticed. In fact, we've set it up now so that if you listen to the podcast in the Spreaker podcast player, you can comment on individual episodes and I'll be notified so I can see your comments and respond to them. That's something I can't do in other podcast apps. You can find the free Spreaker podcast player in your mobile app store. And thanks for helping to spread the weird darkness. My girlfriend was going to night school and I was drinking beer and watching TV one night when Patty, a roommate, knocked on my door and wanted to know if my girlfriend was around. I told her that she would not be home until midnight and she complained about the spookiness of the house and wanted me to sit in her room with her and watch TV there while she did her study work as her boyfriend was out of town. So I'm sitting there watching TV and drinking beer while she studied and we heard someone enter the front door. This was about 9 p.m. and she asked, is that Kathy? 
I was sure that she wasn't due home for hours, and Patty told me that her boyfriend was out of town for a week, so we both got up and looked down the stairs where we saw the shadowy figure of a man walk from the vestibule into the kitchen. We looked at each other and, although scared, decided to investigate. The house had more than one ghost, the worst being a crying baby, but this was a first. We went down to the kitchen together, and the door to the basement was open, and we never left that open. This old Victorian house had a basement you would not want to go down in daylight, let alone at night. Patty was a farm girl and said, You've got a shotgun, don't you? Of course, I said, and we went back up and armed ourselves. She walked in front of me with a 20-gauge pump, and I was behind her with a pistol. We went down the stairs and saw that someone or something had turned the light on, just a bulb hanging from a socket you had to go down and pull a string. As we reached the last step, Patty, with the shotgun in hand, asked if I wanted to keep going. I said, no way, and we walked backwards up the stairs, closed the door, and none of us ever went down there again that I can recall. When I was a child, my parents lived in Ontario, Canada. I had just gone to bed one night and was watching TV with my cat. My cat suddenly got scared and freaked out. I looked around the room and all of a sudden something grabbed my ankles and pulled me down the bed. I remember being pulled very angrily down to the bottom of the bed, but I couldn't see anything. Then it was like something was sitting on the bottom of the bed next to me. I could see the depression in the mattress. I got up, left the room, and would never sleep in that bedroom again. Some years ago, my family and I moved to a house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The previous owner had died suddenly and his family wanted to sell everything – house, contents, everything. We moved into a house that was decorated in a very 1950s style. My room had an armchair, an old bed, an old stereo, and a pile of dusty old books. A few days later, bored, I went to my room and started to read one of the old books. It was about the paranormal. I soon discovered that all of the books were about the paranormal, and inside one of them there was a newspaper cutting from the turn of the century. I discovered that the house we had bought had once belonged to a priest who had by all accounts gone mad due to spending too much time on his own. I thought nothing of it. My father had told me that the president of a local bank had just owned the house, so this man must have owned it many, many years ago. Another week went by and I didn't think about it, but one Sunday night I was trying to sleep and all I could think about was an old man scared and hiding in my room. A strange, scary creature with disconnected arms and legs was tormenting him. I was pretty creeped out, so I turned my light on and decided to do some reading. Of course, the only books in the room were the paranormal ones, 
left over from the house's previous owner. I opened one of the books and saw a drawing. It was one of the creatures I saw. Apparently, it was a demon of some kind and was well known. I was a young kid. I knew nothing about the paranormal and I hadn't seen that image before. Yet it still makes me wonder if I saw the past. Did that priest come into contact with that demon I saw in my subconscious state? Many, many years ago, I went on a school trip to Southwest England. One evening during the day, there were some girls in the hotel of a similar age who would come for the weekly disco there. I was immediately attracted to one of them and over the course of the evening did everything I could to hook up with her. I had some success and at some time after midnight I walked her home holding hands. As we walked out of town down a dark country lane, she began to become afraid and insisted that I leave her to walk the remaining half a mile or so on her own. She told me a rather strange story as we walked. She told me that her parents were witches and of the darker variety. She told me how she was forced to take part in rituals and was extremely scared. She told me that even now I was in danger just by her being with me. I laughed at her creepy tale but stopped short when I saw the tears in her eyes. Go quickly, she urged me, before you have their attention. I have to admit that a touch of ice ran down my spine, and after a quick hug, I left. I arrived back at the hotel deeply perturbed by her story, but as you do, I laughed it off and went to bed. At first, I was fine. However, as I lay on the point of sleep, a strange feeling came over me, as if I were being observed. Of course, I put this down to my imagination. I finally did fall asleep, but had very strange dreams and awoke in the later hours of the morning covered in sweat. It was very dark. In the corner of the room, I could swear there were two bright red eyes. I shut mine tight and willed it to go away, but when I opened my eyes again, there they were. Shaking, I reached for the bedside light. However, it did not work. There I was in sheer darkness with a pair of red eyes staring at me from the corner of the room and a growing air of malevolence in my small room. I was terrified. Who wouldn't be? I began to pray silently. I invoked the forces of good to defend and protect me and more besides. The feeling of gloom and despair deepened. The eyes grew in intensity. I prayed more feverishly, shivering in what was now a very cold room. Suddenly, the most amazing thing occurred. I saw a glow appear. Slowly, it took on shape and solidity. What I saw defied any logic. It became a soldier in a bright blue uniform. It looked at me and the love emanating from his eyes was sufficient to calm me. It even smiled at me. In one movement, it raised its arm in a gesture that said, Begone, and that was it. The gloom lifted. 
The atmosphere turned into one of happiness. A fragrance passed through the room of roses and the first light of dawn peeked through the curtains. The eyes were gone, and so was the soldier. When we first moved into our house in Houston, Texas, we had a few strange experiences. The house wasn't old, perhaps 10 years old by the time we moved in, so we really couldn't explain the occurrences. The first thing we noticed was what appeared to be a dog walking by just outside the den windows in the backyard. It was a big dog and moving slowly. The first few times, we just assumed it belonged to a neighbor, but once we got to know them, we learned no one locally had a big dog. Occasionally, I would run out across the kitchen and out the back door, but there was never any dog to be found. After a while, we just got used to the ghostly dog in the yard. After all, he didn't bark or bite. The next thing was crying. We would hear crying coming from an upstairs room, but whenever we went up the stairs, we found no one and no reason for the sound. Eventually, the crying sounds stopped. Who knows who the dog belonged to or why it would pass by the back window so often. As for the crying, we did find the previous owners had lost a small child. About 20 years ago, we moved into a very old house. When one of the walls was removed, they found a room. Inside the room, two of the workmen discovered an old table. It looked extremely old, and my parents decided to keep it. At the time, we all thought it was a beautiful table, and it lived in our dining room. We had never experienced any kind of paranormal activity but we began to notice that some of our family photos taken at the table had orbs in them. Finally, we realized that the only photos that had orbs in them were photos that included the table. Nothing more sinister than that really happened. We still have the table, and strange things happen when the focus is on the table. For example, my mother was showing the table to her friend and a vase that had been sitting on a shelf fell to the floor. I've seen plates switch sides of the table, and my father swears the table has moved just inches, but he swears it has moved. My question is this. Can an object be possessed? You shut yourself in. The lights are out and you're listening to Weird Darkness. But suddenly, you get that feeling you're not alone. You don't know what might be under the bed, or in the closet, or in the attic, or in the room with you. You don't dare try to sleep now. You're too scared to. If you doze off, you might be vulnerable to the creatures who haunt your dreams. That's just one more reason to have Weird Dark Roast Coffee in the cupboard, because you just never know when you might need it. Weird Dark Roast Coffee contains deep notes of cocoa, caramel, and a touch of sinister sweetness. 
Each bag is fresh roasted to order by Evansville Coffee, and delivery is free for your first order. Just use the promo code WEIRD. You can find a link to it at WeirdDarkness.com. Grab a bag before something else grabs you from the dark. Pluckley Village in Kent is said to be the most haunted village in the UK. Over the years, many kinds of spirits have been seen by both locals and tourists. The ghost of an old gypsy, wrapped in a shawl and smoking a pipe, has often been spotted standing near a bridge. The shattered remains of an old oak tree situated nearby is a noted haunt for the apparition of a murdered highwayman. In life, the highwayman was said to have been killed by a sword, and it was this weapon that impaled him to the tree. There are many buildings in Pluckley Village which are also reputed to be haunted. For instance, in the Church of St. Nicholas, the spirit of Lady Daring, who was buried in three lead coffins to prevent her decay, occasionally manifests itself. She has been seen walking through the churchyard at night with the red rose with which she was buried unwithered on her breast. In the Daring Chapel, mysterious lights have been seen through the windows, and the disembodied voice of a woman has been heard in the churchyard. The spirit of a long-dead monk is said to haunt a house called Greystones, and the voice of a former owner of another house, Rose Court, has often been heard there as she calls her dogs. Also, the old mill is haunted by the ghost of a miller, who is said to be in constant search of his lost love during the nocturnal hours. In the Daring Arms public house, a spectral woman dressed in Victorian clothing hangs around the bar. In another pub, the Black Horse, a spectral hand moves items across the bar, tidies up, and occasionally hides coats and wallets. A ghostly carriage pulled by two horses has often been seen trotting down the main public street of Pluckley. The origin of this carriage is unknown, but the most terrifying of all the entities said to haunt Pluckley Village has to be that of the so-called Screaming Ghost. The blood-curdling screams of this ghost have been heard in the area around the brickworks, Pluckley Heath. aware that houses can be haunted. Sometimes, whoever or whatever is attempting to reclaim their home from the living can make life miserable for the people involved. At other times, as in the story you are about to hear, it isn't the human residents of a home who are being terrorized. It is, instead, their most loyal and trusted companion, their dog. This tale came to me via my sister, who owns a very successful pet-sitting business. It all began when a would-be client, whom I will call Jennifer, inquired about hiring a sitter for her dog. Jennifer explained that her circumstances were unique. Her dog, Bishop, suffered from severe panic attacks and needed constant supervision. Everything sounded straightforward, and my sister was ready to take on the new client. 
That is, until Jennifer explained the reason for her dog's anxiety. Bishop was being stalked by something not of this earth. An entity had taken up residence in Jennifer's house, and although she was aware of its presence, it rarely made contact with her. Bishop, on the other hand, couldn't seem to escape the entity's wrath. It was for that reason that the dog could not be left alone in the house. My sister is not easily put off, especially when it comes to business, so she agreed to meet with Jennifer to discuss Bishop's situation in more detail. Little did she know at the time, but the big dog's story would be like none she had ever encountered before or since. This would be the one potential client she would have to walk away from, not only because of the seemingly impossible task of helping the dog, but also out of fear for her own safety. When my sister and Jennifer met face to face, they hit it off right away. Jennifer was very open and forthcoming with my sister. She once again explained that her house was surely haunted. Things would move around by themselves. Doors would slam for no reason. She would hear someone singing when she was the only person in the house. As strange as those occurrences may seem, they didn't bother Jennifer. It was how the spirit, or spirits, that inhabited the house affected her dog that had persuaded Jennifer to seek help. At this point, Jennifer backtracked and gave my sister some history on the house and on Bishop. Jennifer and her boyfriend had bought the house together a couple of years earlier. It was an old fixer-upper that they had been restoring together. They weren't ready to start a family, but they did want to adopt a canine companion. Jennifer's boyfriend had done some research online to try and find the perfect dog. After much searching, he had decided that a rare breed, the Cane Corso, was the dog for them. They found a breeder and made arrangements to adopt from the next available litter. The puppy was very expensive, but Jennifer, and especially her boyfriend, were determined to have this particular dog. After what seemed like ages, their puppy was finally ready to join Jennifer and her boyfriend at what would be its new home. They weren't disappointed with their decision. He was a beautiful puppy, full of life, affectionate, and protective right off the bat. He was especially attached to Jennifer's boyfriend. They bonded instantly and were practically inseparable. Things couldn't have been more perfect for the young couple and their new dog. Sadly, their happiness was to be short-lived. Not long after welcoming the puppy, whom they named Bishop, into their home, tragedy struck. Jennifer's boyfriend was on a ladder doing some work on the house when he was seized by a blinding headache that sent him crashing to the floor. Jennifer couldn't move him, so she called an ambulance. By the time the emergency crew arrived on the scene, her boyfriend was barely breathing. He died shortly afterwards at the hospital. Jennifer would learn that he had suffered an embolism in his brain. Jennifer was devastated. All of the dreams that she and her boyfriend had of renovating the house had been shattered in an instant. The life they had planned together was not to be. Everything had changed. Jennifer and Bishop would have to make it on their own. It was a very sad household for a long while after her boyfriend's death. Bishop moped around, looking all over for his companion who was nowhere to be found. Jennifer attempted to pick up where her boyfriend had left off with the renovations, 
but decided that it was too much for her, so she ended up hiring workers to do the job she couldn't. After a while, she and Bishop established a new normal. That is, until something unknown to Jennifer set up residence in her house. It was several weeks after her boyfriend's death that Jennifer first began hearing the random singing coming from empty rooms throughout the house. She would follow the noise until she thought she had found the room it was coming from, only to open the door and be greeted by silence. There was no one there, ever. She also began hearing doors slamming at all hours. Again, she could never find the source of the disturbance. Jennifer knew that it wasn't her imagination playing tricks on her. There was another witness to all of the bizarre happenings in the house, Bishop. The dog, who was growing larger by the day, would jump up from his bed or wherever he happened to be when the phantom singing would ring through the house. He would also jump up any time he heard a door slam. Unfortunately for Bishop, it didn't end there. Not for him, anyway. Jennifer said that the dog would be lying on the sofa next to her when suddenly he would yelp and whirl around as though someone had pulled his tail or poked him. This occurred often, no matter where he was resting. The dog never seemed to be able to sleep. Anytime he tried, he would jump up with a start and run around the house, his tail tucked between his legs. Worried that Bishop might be ill, Jennifer took him to the veterinarian for a complete checkup. The vet could find nothing wrong with the dog. He was as healthy as a horse. She took him home only to have the cycle begin again. Bishop was constantly harassed by something in the house. Jennifer didn't know how bad it was until one day when she left the dog home alone while she went to visit friends for the afternoon. She was only gone for a few hours, but when she got home, she found her dog cowering in the space between her refrigerator and kitchen cabinets. It was a small area, but Bishop had wedged himself in there so tightly that he could barely move. He was obviously terrified. Jennifer could see that he was shaking all over. As bad as that was, it wasn't all that she found when she returned home. In an attempt to escape from whatever was tormenting him, Bishop had torn the back door almost off of its hinges. Jennifer had never seen anything like it. He was not a dog prone to destroying things, but he had gnawed at the doorknob and had even managed to splinter the door in several places. Whatever had frightened Bishop that day had panicked him so much that he had literally tried to chew his way out of the house. She knew then that she could never leave him alone. There was no telling what he would be subjected to if she did. It was at this point that my sister asked Jennifer why she didn't just sell the house. She explained that she couldn't for several reasons. First and foremost, she owed more on it than she could get out of it. Secondly, it had been a labor of love for her and her boyfriend and she didn't want to give up on it. Along those same lines, she didn't want to find Bishop another home because her boyfriend had been so attached to him. She was stuck between a rock and a hard place and her dog was suffering as a result. Jennifer stressed to my sister that this was why she needed a pet sitter. She had some overnight trips she wanted to take where dogs wouldn't be welcomed she would need someone who could stay day and night with Bishop. 
He was anxious in the house no matter what, but having someone there seemed to make it less traumatic for him. My sister agreed to take on Bishop as a client. Jennifer was overjoyed and everything seemed like it would work out for all parties. That is, until my sister got home and started thinking about everything that Jennifer had told her about the house. She immediately had a change of heart. Even though she hated to do it, my sister phoned Jennifer and told her that she would not be taking the job after all. Jennifer was not happy at all to hear this. My sister suggested that Jennifer board Bishop at a kennel. She even gave her the names of a couple of the better pet care facilities in the area. Jennifer wouldn't hear of it. She abruptly hung up, and that was that. When my sister told me the story, she explained that as much as she liked the dog, the house had given her a horrible feeling. She started to worry that the thing that was terrorizing the dog might attach to her. She asked me if I thought she was being silly. I knew that she wasn't. Spirits can and do attach to people for reasons we can never know. In this case, better safe than sorry. It is curious to me that all of the disturbances in the house started shortly after the boyfriend passed on. Does that mean that he was haunting Jennifer and Bishop? I don't think so. He loved them and had no reason to make their lives miserable. Maybe the dark presence that had laid claim to the house was always there. It had just been dormant until something awakened it. Perhaps the boyfriend's gentle spirit had kept the entity at bay. It could be that the dog's arrival had been the trigger. It's all just speculation at this point. Whatever the cause, this story is very recent, so it's a pretty sure bet that Bishop's nightmare continues. There are very few among those with a love for the supernatural who don't also have a passion for Edgar Allan Poe. Poe wasn't simply a melancholy author who wrote about premature burials, sinister black cats, and talking ravens. He was much more. If you've ever read a modern mystery or horror novel, you can thank Poe. Poe invented the modern mystery story, mostly invented science fiction, and was the first writer to take the horror stories of the Gothic era and set them in modern times, starting a trend that continues today. With a lifelong interest in Poe, Troy Taylor decided to take his own look at the mysterious and macabre writer, his tragic life, unexplained death, and lingering hauntings. He invites listeners along to delve into the strange and bizarre world of Edgar Allan Poe, from his early life to his tragic marriage, his insane grief, his dramatically failed career, his links to an unsolved murder, and the mystery of what happened to the writer in the five days before his unexplained death. Even more than a century and a half later, no one knows what happened to Poe before he was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore, Maryland, or what killed him. Why did he disappear and then show up in an incoherent state, wearing another man's clothes? Where did he go when he vanished and who was the mysterious Reynolds that Poe whispered about in his dying breath? And perhaps strangest of all, does he haunt the mysterious graveyard where his body is buried? Nevermore, The Haunted Life and Mysterious Death of Edgar Allan Poe, written by Troy Taylor, narrated by Darren Marlar. 
Find a link to the book on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. One of the first questions that people ask when they learn that I write about the supernatural for a living is whether or not I have ever seen a ghost. Since I confess to being a psychic as a fence post, I don't go around seeing dead people. I've had some pretty strange experiences, but there have only been a handful of occasions when I actually believe I saw ghosts. Could they have been tricks of the lights or the products of an overactive imagination? It's possible at least in a couple of instances, but there is no question about what I saw at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium in 2002. I saw a ghost. And that should come as no surprise, since Waverly Hills is one of the most haunted places that I have ever visited. During the 1800s and early 1900s, America was ravaged by a deadly disease known to many as the White Death tuberculosis. This terrifying and very contagious plague, for which no cure existed before antibiotics were discovered, claimed entire families and occasionally entire towns. In 1900, Louisville, Kentucky had the highest tuberculosis death rate in America. On low swampland, the area was the perfect breeding ground for disease. In 1910, construction was started on a two-story frame hospital on a windswept hill in southern Jefferson County. The building was designed to accommodate 40 or 50 patients, and as the number of patients increased, it became clear that a new hospital was needed. The new structure, known as Waverly Hills, opened in 1926. Built in the collegiate Gothic style, it was considered the most advanced tuberculosis sanatorium in the country. Even then, most of the patients succumbed to the disease. There was no medicine available at that time to treat tuberculosis, and so patients were offered rest, fresh air, and lots of nutritious food. Sadly, the main use for the hospital was to isolate those who had come down with the disease and to keep them away from those who were still healthy. Families were tragically divided, with parents and even children forced into the sanatorium with little contact with their loved ones. Treatments for tuberculosis were sometimes as bad as the disease itself. Some of the experiments that were conducted in search of a cure seem barbaric by today's standards, but others are now common practice. Patients' lungs were exposed to ultraviolet light to try and stop the spread of bacteria. This was done in sunrooms, using artificial light in place of sunlight, or on the roof or in open porches of the hospital. Since fresh air was thought to also be a possible cure, patients were often placed in front of huge windows or on the open porches no matter what the season. Old photographs show patients lounging in chairs, taking in the fresh air while literally covered with snow. Other treatments were less pleasant and much bloodier. Balloons would be surgically implanted in the lungs and then filled with air to expand them. Needless to say, this often had disastrous results, as did an operation where muscles and ribs were removed from a patient's chest 
to allow the lungs to expand further and let in more oxygen. This blood-soaked procedure was seen as a last resort, and many patients did not survive it. While the patients who survived both the disease and the treatments left Waverly Hills through the front door, many others left through what came to be known as the body chute. This enclosed tunnel for the dead led from the hospital to the railroad tracks at the bottom of the hill. Using a motorized rail and cable system, bodies were lowered in secret to the waiting trains. This was done so that patients would not see how many were leaving the hospital as corpses. There are many inaccurate reports as to how many people died during Waverly Hills' decades of operation. Some claim that tens of thousands died within the walls of the hospital, but this number is greatly exaggerated. According to Dr. J. Frank Stewart, a former assistant medical director at the hospital, the highest number of deaths to occur at Waverly Hills in a single year was 152. By 1955, those numbers had dropped to as low as 42 deaths, and it's been estimated, based on death certificates that were filed, that approximately 6,000 people died there, dating all the way back to the original hospital records from 1911. While far short of the number being tossed about in the legends, it's still a tremendous number of deaths to have occurred in a single structure. By the late 1930s, tuberculosis had begun to decline worldwide, and by 1943, new medicines had largely eradicated the disease in the United States. A small jump in new cases did occur after World War II, and many soldiers returning from the war were housed at Waverly Hills. Dr. Stewart noted in his autobiography that many of the soldiers had cases that were so advanced that they did not live for more than a week after arriving at the hospital. In 1961, Waverly Hills was closed, but was reopened a year later as Woodhaven Geriatrics Sanitarium. There have been many stories told about patient mistreatment and unusual experiments during the years that the building was used as an old age home. Some of them have been proven to be false, but others have unfortunately turned out to be true. Electroshock therapy, which was considered to be highly effective in those days, was widely used for a variety of ailments. Budget cuts in the 1960s and 1970s led to both horrible conditions and patient mistreatment, and in 1982, the state closed the facility for good. Is it any wonder, after all of the death, pain, and agony within these walls, that Waverly Hills is considered to be one of the most haunted places in the country? The buildings and land were auctioned off and changed hands many times over the course of the next two decades. In 1983, a developer purchased the property with plans to turn it into a minimum security prison for the state of Kentucky. Plans were dropped after neighbors protested, and a new idea to turn the former hospital into apartments was devised. A lack of financing caused this plan to be abandoned. In March 1996, Waverly Hills and the surrounding land was bought by Robert Alberhaski, who ran Christ the Redeemer Foundation Incorporated. He had plans to construct the world's tallest statue of Jesus on the Waverly site, along with an art and worship center. The statue, which was inspired by the famed Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, was to be situated on the roof of the hospital at a cost of about $4 million. 
The next phase of his plan was to convert the sanatorium into a chapel, theater, and gift shop for another $8 million. Not surprisingly, donations to the project fell far short of what was expected. During the first year, only $3,000 was raised towards the effort and the project was scrapped in December 1997. Alberhasky abandoned the Waverly Hills property and then, in order to recoup some of his costs, tried to have the property condemned so that the buildings could be torn down and the land redeveloped. This plan was blocked by the county and, according to rumor, demolition work was then done around the southern edge of the building in order to undermine the structural foundations and collect insurance money. This scheme also failed, and in 2001, Waverly Hills was sold to Charlie and Tina Mattingly, the current owners of the property. By 2001, the once stately building had been nearly destroyed by time, the elements and vandals who came looking for a thrill. Waverly Hills had become the local haunted house, and it became a magnet for the homeless looking for shelter and teenagers who broke in looking for ghosts. The hospital soon gained a reputation for being haunted and stories began to circulate of resident ghosts like the little girl who was seen running up and down the third floor solarium, the little boy who was spotted with a leather ball, the hearse that happened in the back of the building dropping off coffins, the woman with the bleeding wrists who cried for help, and others. Visitors told of slamming doors, lights in the windows when no power was running through the building, strange sounds and eerie footsteps in empty rooms. Other legends told of a man in a white coat who was seen walking in the kitchen and the smell of cooking food that sometimes wafted through the room. The kitchen was a disaster, a ruin of broken windows, fallen plaster, broken tables and chairs, and puddles of water and debris that resulted from a leaking roof. The cafeteria had not fared much better. Even so, a number of people reported hearing footsteps in the room, seeing a door swinging shut under its own power, and the smell of fresh-baked bread in the air. Perhaps the greatest and most controversial legend of Waverly Hills was connected to the fifth floor of the building. This area of the old hospital consisted of two nurses' stations, a pantry, a linen room, a medicine room, and two medium-sized rooms on both sides of the two nurses' stations. One of these, room 502, is the subject of many rumors and legends, and just about every curiosity seeker that had broken into Waverly Hills over the years wanted to see it. This is where, according to the stories, people have seen shapes moving in the windows have heard disembodied voices, and, if the legends are to be believed, some have even jumped to their deaths. There are a lot of legends about what went on in this part of the hospital, but perhaps the biggest misconception was that this was a floor used to house mentally ill tuberculosis patients. This was not the case. The patients here were not insane, nor were they confined to their rooms they were free to move about just like patients on all of the other floors of the hospital. This floor, thanks to its design, allowed patients to still benefit from the fresh air and sunshine that was believed to cure or at least extend the lives of those with the disease. It was centered in the middle of the hospital, and the two wards, extending out from the nurses' station, 
were glassed in on all sides and opened out onto a patio-type roof. According to the stories, a nurse was found dead in room 502 in 1928. She had committed suicide by hanging herself from the light fixture. She was said to have been 29 years old at the time of her death, unmarried and pregnant. It's unknown how long she may have been hanging in this room before her body was discovered, and this would not be the only tragedy said to be connected to room 502. In 1932, stories say, another nurse who worked in the same room jumped from the roof patio and plunged to her death. No one seems to know why she would have done this, but many have speculated that she may have been pushed over the edge. There are no records to confirm this, but the rumors continue to persist. Those are the stories, anyway. As with so many legends, no records exist to say that any of this actually happened. There are also conflicting accounts as to how the pregnant nurse managed to hang herself. Some say that she did it from the light fixture, others from a pipe over the door, and some say from the rafters. There are no rafters. The pipe over the door was part of a sprinkler system installed in 1972, and the light fixture is hung on a light decorative chain that would not hold the weight of a person. There is no actual documentation of either death, although some claim the stories were verified by a former staff member named John Thornberry who died in 2006. According to his obituary, Thornberry was born in 1922, which would have made him six and ten years old at the time of the alleged deaths in room 502. This makes his verification more than a little problematic. So, what happened in room 502 that could cause so many people to claim paranormal experiences there? Overactive imaginations, or is it something real? It's hard to say, but it seems likely that something occurred in that room to cause the legend to take root in the first place. What that might have been, no one knows. The story of Room 502 may have been loosely based on some forgotten facts, but the truth remains buried under speculation and rumor. In spite of this, strange things continued to be reported. Over the course of the next year, volunteers working toward the restoration of the building experienced ghostly sounds, heard slamming doors, saw lights appear in the building where none should have been, had objects thrown at them, were struck by unseen hands, saw apparitions in doorways and corridors and more. But none of the stories that I had been told could have prepared me for my first visit to Waverly Hills. The first time that I visited the hospital was in September 2002. I was in town for a convention and a friend of mine who had been working with the owners at Waverly Hills offered to take me to see the place that I had been hearing so much about. At that point, the old hospital had been opened for tours but had not reached the level of infamy that it has today. There were yet to be any television shows, books, or websites dedicated to it. It was literally a dark and stormy night when we arrived at the hospital, and it had been raining all day. I was looking forward to seeing the place, no matter what the weather, and not because I was convinced that I would meet one of the former patients face-to-face. -face. I simply wanted to experience the place for myself. By this time, I had traveled all over the country and had been to hundreds of places that were alleged to be haunted, 
I had felt just this same way before exploring all of them, so Waverly Hills was no different. To me, it was just an old, spooky building with a fascinating history. The fact that it was alleged to be haunted simply added to the experience. I had long since abandoned the idea of expecting too much. After meeting with the owners, we went inside and started our exploration of the building. It was almost silent. All I could hear was the sound of our own footsteps, our hushed voices, and the drip of rain as it slipped through the cracks in the roof and splashed down onto the floor. I was given the full guided tour and saw various rooms, the treatment areas, the kitchen, the morgue, and on and on. We climbed the stairs to the top floor and I saw the legendary Room 502, as well as the lights of Louisville as they reflected off the low and ominous-looking clouds that had gathered above the city. The only floor that we skipped over was the fourth. My friend explained that this was the only floor in the building to which the entrance was kept locked and he had saved it for last. When we finally arrived on the fourth floor, I got the distinct feeling that something strange was in the air. I make absolutely no claims of any psychic ability whatsoever, but there was just something about this floor of the hospital that felt different than any of the others. What had been nothing more than an old ramshackle, broken-down building suddenly seemed different. I can't really put into words what felt so strange about it, but there almost seemed to be a tangible presence that I had not encountered anywhere else in the place and right away, eerie things started to happen. We had entered the floor in what I believe was the center of the building. Behind us was a wing that I was told was not safe to enter. Sections of the floor had collapsed and this area was off limits to tours and visitors. The strange thing about it was that both of us clearly heard the sounds of doors slamming from this part of the building. I can assure the reader that it was not the wind. The wind was not strong enough that night to have moved those heavy doors, and it clearly sounded as though someone was closing them very hard. When I questioned my friend about who else could be up there with us, he said we were the only ones because the floors were unsafe in that section. I investigated on my own and determined that he was correct. There was no one walking around on that part of the fourth floor. I switched off my flashlight and we walked down the corridor using only the dim, ambient light from outside. The hallway runs through the center of the building and on either side are former patient rooms. Beyond the rooms is the porch area that opens to the outside. It was there where the patients were placed to take in the fresh air. There was never any glass in the huge outer windows, which has left the interior of the floor open to the elements. On this night, the windows also illuminated the corridor thanks to the low-hanging clouds that glowed with the lights of Louisville. We walked down through the dark and murky corridor and I began to see shadows that flickered back and forth. I was sure that this was a trick of the eye, likely caused by the lights or the wind moving something outside. But it was where the corridor angled to the right that I got a look at something that was definitely not a trick of the eye. In order for the reader to understand what I saw, I have to explain that the hallway ahead of us continued straight for a short distance and then turned sharply to the right. In the early 1900s, most institutions of this type were designed in this manner, 
It was what was dubbed the bat wing design, which meant that there was a main center in each building, and then the wings extended right and left, then angled again so that they ran slightly backward like a bird or bat wings. Directly at the angle ahead of us was a doorway that led into a treatment room. I only noticed the doorway in the darkness because the dim light from the windows beyond it had caused it to glow slightly. This made it impossible to miss since it was straight ahead of us. We took a few more steps and then, without warning, the clear and distinct silhouette of a man crossed the lighted doorway, passed into the hall and then vanished into a room on the other side of the corridor. I got a distinct look at the figure and I know that it was a man and that he was wearing something long and white that could have been a doctor's coat. The sighting only lasted a few seconds, but I knew what I had seen. And for some reason, it shocked and startled me so badly that I let out a yell and grabbed hold of my friend's jacket. I'm not sure why it affected me in that way. Perhaps it was the setting, the figure's sudden appearance, my own anxiety, or likely all of these things. Regardless, after my yell, I demanded that my friend turn on a light and help me to examine the room the man had vanished into. After my initial fright, I became convinced that someone else was on the floor with us. My friend assured me we were the only ones there, but he did help me search for the intruder, in an empty room with only one way in or out. There was no one there. Whoever that figure had been, he had utterly and completely vanished. I doubt that I was the first person to see this mysterious apparition on the fourth floor, and it's unlikely that I will be the last. However, this sighting convinced me that Waverly Hills is haunted. Usually, for me to declare a place to be haunted, I must have my own unexplainable experience that goes beyond a mere bump in the night or spooky photograph. In this case, I had actually seen a ghost, and at the time, I could count my personal ghost sightings on two fingers. Waverly Hills is haunted, and for me, seeing was believing. Thanks for listening to this Dark Archives episode of Weird Darkness. If you like the show, please share it with someone you know who loves the paranormal or strange stories, true crime, monsters, or unsolved mysteries like you do. You can email me anytime with your questions or comments at darren at weirddarkness.com. Darren is D-A-R-R-E-N. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Minds, MeWe, and more, including the show's Weirdos Facebook group, on the contact social page at weirddarkness.com. Also on the website, if you have a true paranormal or creepy tale to tell, click on Tell Your Story or call the Dark Line toll-free at 1-877-277-5944. That's 1-877-277-5944. All stories in Weird Darkness are purported to be true unless stated otherwise, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. Weird Darkness is a copyright and trademark of Marlar House Productions. I'm Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.
Want to receive the commercial-free version of Weird Darkness every day? For just $5 per month, you can become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com. As a patron, you get commercial-free episodes of Weird Darkness every day, bonus audio, and you also receive chapters of audiobooks as I narrate them, even before the authors and publishers hear them. But more than that, as a patron, you're also helping to reach people who are desperately hurting with depression and anxiety. You get the benefits of being a patron, and you also benefit others who are hurting at the same time. Become a patron at WeirdDarkness.com.